right? Ephesians 6, let's read verse 17 together. Ready? Here we go. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We've been looking at the armor of God over the last several Sundays uh, in, in here. And so we're going to look at the next part of the armor of God. We're going to look at the helmet of salvation, the helmet of salvation. Now, many of you in here have already put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. I'm going to guess that not everyone listening in today, whether online or here, has done that. But many, if not most of you have. Don't check out on me, all right? There's a lot here in this concept of the helmet of salvation, even for the saved. And I hope that this morning I'll give you a lot to think about and some areas where all of us can leave challenged to grow and be more like Jesus. Amen? Let's pray, and we'll get going. Lord, thank you for the service. Thank you for what we've already heard and enjoyed. Lord, the choir number was excellent. Uh, The truth of it, the church singing along with, and uh, Lord, how you are uh, evidently present today. Spirit of God, you're like a dove. You're easily shooed away. And the last thing we want to do is say or do something, have a spirit here that would disinvite you, uninvite you here. And so, Lord God, please, in each of our hearts and lives, would you work and move. Lord, I'm going to be giving the gospel and the message this morning. You know that. Lord, there will be some that need to hear that. My prayer is that not one person would leave here today without a full assurance that when they die, they're going to go to heaven and be with you. There'd be no question about that in any of our hearts. Lord, help all of us to be sharpened and made better because of our time at church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A few weeks back, we talked about the breastplate of righteousness. We said that the that this piece of the armor protects one of the two kill zones of the devil. Remember, we said that if you are shooting to kill, there are two kill zones. They are what? The heart and the... The head. Um, You all awake this morning? The heart and the head, right? Uh, So um, don't be afraid to interact with the pastor in church. Ladies, that includes you, all right? You can interact with the the preacher in church. I enjoy when people say amen when they hear a good point. Let's practice, all right? The Bible is the Word of God. That's good, all right. Jesus saves. There you go. So don't be, don't hesitate. We are not a Protestant church. We're not a monastery, right? We're not a Catholic church. We're a Baptist church. You're allowed to say amen. All right. Okay. Hallelujahs are accepted. Come on, preacher. Let it fly. All right. All that's allowed. That's good preaching. All right. Don't lie now, but if you enjoy it, you can, you can get involved. All right. And so we talked about the two kill zones, the Heart and the... There you go. Okay, this, this week we're going to turn our attention to the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. This, of course, the helmet of salvation, of course, protects our head. Uh, the, the second of Satan's two kill zones where he's trying to take out uh, the, the, the believer, take out uh, humanity, take out God's creation. I believe that many Christians have a limited understanding of what salvation is. Limited understanding of what salvation is. I hope that today, when you leave, you'll have a much deeper understanding of what salvation is. Today, we will see that salvation is much, much more than just 
the entry point of being saved. Many people, all they know about salvation is they pray, they ask Jesus to come in their heart and their life, forgive them their sins. They know they're going to heaven because they did that, but that's where their understanding of salvation begins and ends. They, they don't understand the rest of the truth of salvation. And I'm here today to tell you that salvation is much, much more than just the act of being saved. Salvation of the soul happens upon one's conversion, yes, but salvation of one's relationship with God and uh, transformation into becoming like Christ, uh, uh, the, the, the salvation of service into uh, the work of God, my friend, that is a lifelong journey. We're going to look at five principles this morning as we talk about the helmet of salvation. Okay, let's jump right in. Point number one, if you got a bulletin on the back, you'll find the outline. I encourage you to get out a pen, fill in the blanks, take notes. Here we go. Number one, notice the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation. Now, in order for one to settle their eternal sin debt with God and have their name written down in the Lamb's Book of Life, one must realize four things. We listened this morning. There are four Things, four truths you need to understand in order to make peace with God and know you're going to heaven. Now, real quick here, I've had a lot of people say to me, no one can really know that they're going to heaven someday. How can you be so certain that when you die, you're going to go to heaven? And if you are a skeptic on this, let me encourage you to take that pen of yours and write this verse down. You can look it up later. The verse is 1 John 5.13. 1 John 5.13. Here's what 1 John 5.13 says. It says, These things have I, John, written unto you, uh, the, 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 the reader of the book, listen to this, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. It doesn't say that ye might, that ye might possibly know. It says that ye might know, know that ye have temporary life. Is that what it says? No, eternal life. Life. Listen, I know that I have in my possession eternal life. These things have I written unto you that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. I have no question that when I take my last breath here on earth that heaven's gate is going to swing wide open and I'm going to walk through those pearly gates into the presence of God. I know it. I'm as certain of it as I'm standing here today. I'm as certain of it as uh, I am married to my wife and I'm the father of my children. I'm the pastor of this church. Uh, I'm as certain of it as uh, the fact that I've got bills coming in the mail next month and I'm going to owe taxes at the end of the year. I'm as certain that I'm going to heaven as I am of anything else. Why? Because I have a promise from God's Word that if I believed in the name of Jesus that I would have eternal life. And I would ask you this morning, do you know that you have eternal life? Do you know that when you die, you're going to go to heaven with all certainty? Well, let me give you the four thoughts that you need to understand in order to have the gift of eternal life. Letter A, notice, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. Now, um, the first two thoughts I'm going to share with you lay out the problem. Lay out the problem. The last two thoughts I'm going to give you under point one lay out the solution. How many of you understand that if you watch a good movie or television show, there's tension in the show? 
there's a problem in the narrative. You read a good book, a good fiction book, there's a problem laid out and then a solution that you come to by the end. A good book will offer that. Listen, in order for you to know you're going to heaven, you have to first understand what the problem is, what the, what the thing is that's preventing you from being saved, Well, what, from getting there. What is the problem? The problem is that I am a sinner and you are a sinner. Romans chapter uh, 3 and verse 23 says this. It says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, if you're a Calvinist, you don't believe the word all means all. But for everyone else here, all means everyone. All means everyone. Uh, I've yet to meet a person who isn't a sinner. Yet to meet one. And I know lots and lots of people. Uh, I know people in the United States. I know people who live in Canada. I know people who live in Mexico. I just got back from a trip from Peru. Can I tell you what I found when I went to Peru? There are wonderful people down there. I married one of, the, one of them, amen? And she's great. But can I tell you what I know about the people who live in Peru? They're all sinners. Every last one of them. I've yet to meet anyone that isn't a sinner. What is a sin? Watch this now. A sin is anything that I think, say, or do that breaks God's laws. That breaks God's laws. You remember the man who came to Jesus and he said, uh, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, keep the commandments. And he said, this I've done for my youth up. And, I, and Jesus was wise enough to say to the man, then give away all your wealth and uh, uh, sell, sell all that you have and give that to the poor and come and follow me. And the man went away sorrowful. Can I just back up that story a little bit and say, I don't think, sir, that you've never, that you've kept all of the laws of God your whole life. James chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that if we break the law at one point, we violated the whole thing. How many of you here have ever told a lie? Some of you didn't raise your hand. You know what that makes you? <laughs> yes, for not raising your hand. But also, right, because you've told a lie. How many murders do we have to commit to become a murderer? How many lies do you have to tell to become a liar? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Jesus said if you look at a woman and lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. Jesus said if you hate your brother, it's akin to murdering. Why? Because you've broken the spirit of the law. You see, the truth is we're all sinners. Now, I want you to... Well, I'm, I don't want to get ahead of myself here. Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous. None righteous. No, not one. Not one. Boy, that's pretty foolproof. How about Isaiah 64.6 concerning this thought? It says, But we are all as unclean things, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I'm a good person, Pastor Lejeune. You're talking about the fact that I'm a sinner. and Yes, that's true. But I've also done a lot of really good things in my life. Uh, you know, I, every now and then I go through the habit of going to uh, the store and buying a new pack of T-shirts. And I'll lay those T-shirts on my bed. And then I'll take an old ratty T-shirt that I've worn and I've sweated in out doing yard work or out uh, playing basketball or whatever. And this shirt I've had for four, five, six, seven years. And I'll take that shirt after it comes out of the wash and I'll lay it on top of one of my new t-shirts. And you know what? That old t-shirt doesn't look so white. Doesn't look so clean anymore. 
You take your righteousnesses and you lay them up against the righteous character of God. And God says that in comparison to me, even the good things you do are as filthy rags in my sight. You see, as human beings, we want to compare ourselves to each other. I'm better than the drug dealer on the corner. The drug dealer on the corner says, well, I've never committed murder. The murderer says, well, I only did it once. And there are people who've committed multiple murders. And the, the person who's a serial killer says, well, I'm a good, behaved citizen in prison. I've never been thrown in the hole. You see, we can always find somebody to compare ourselves to that makes us better than someone else. But in comparison to each other, we may be good. But in comparison to God, we fall way short. And that lays out our problem, doesn't it? You see, for you to know you have eternal life, you must first humble yourself and admit that you're a sinner. I am a sinner. Notice letter B. I deserve an eternal death sentence. I deserve an eternal death sentence. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Now I want you to think uh, this through with me for a minute. Imagine that uh, instead of getting paid every payday, we were to take all of your, uh, uh, all of your earnings and we were to delay all of your earnings until you were 65 years old. Okay, so you get no money. Now, I, this is hypothetical, but, but stay with me here on this. You get no money and you get to where you're 65 years old and you've worked since you were 18 years old. You've worked 40 hours a week uh, from 18 all the way to 65, and at 65, you're going to be handed a check for the value of all of your earnings at one time. How big would that check be? It would be huge, wouldn't it? It would be in the millions of dollars. Now, uh, do you understand that every time you sin, you offend God? There are books in heaven that record your wrongdoings. One day you're going to die and you're going to stand before God and those books are going to get pulled. The doctrine of what I'm teaching is found in the end of Revelation. The books are open, the Bible says. How big of a paycheck would you get for all of the wrongdoings you've committed your whole life being handed to you at one time? Ezekiel chapter 18, in verse number 20, the Bible says, The soul that sinneth, not the body that sinneth, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. What does death mean in the Bible? Death does not mean termination. It means separation. It does not mean termination. When you die, you don't just go to the dirt and, and become the dust of the earth. No, my friend, you were made in the image and likeness of God. God is a three-part being in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. Likewise, we're made in His image. You are a three-part being in one. You have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. Your spirit is your emotions. That soul that lives within you is eternal. It's either going to spend eternity in heaven with God or in hell apart from God, separated from God. The Bible says the soul, not the body, the body that sinneth dies, but the soul that sinneth it shall die. It shall be 
separated. Revelation 21, verse 8, makes it very clear. The Bible says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters. You say, Pastor, I'm not a, a whoremonger or a sorcerer or an idolater, but how about this next one in all liars? All liars. We've qualified all of us in here to fit that category. Listen to what the Bible says. Shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone. That sounds like hell to me. The verse ends this way which is the second death. Second death. The second separation. How much does God hate sin? He hates sin so much that if you die in it, He will send you separated from Him for all of eternity. What makes hell so terrible? Can I tell you what makes hell so terrible? It is the antithesis of everything that God is. God is light. Hell is darkness. God is pleasure. Hell is misery. God is love. Hell is full of hate. In heaven we'll rejoice forever with our Savior. We'll have perfect harmony with Him. In hell there'll be anguish and torment and fear forever and ever and ever. You see, what makes hell so terrible is that God does not exist in any aspect in hell. Those who reject God on earth will live in that rejection for all of eternity. You understand our problem is that because you are a sinner, you are born condemned to die and go to hell. You say, but pastor, I had no choice but to be born in sin. No, my friend, you did not have a choice, but Adam, our father, had a choice. And he chose to put a sin curse on all of us and damn us or condemn us to hell. I oftentimes get to this point in explanation with somebody one-on-one, and I can tell you what their response is. Their response is this right here. Then I have no hope. I have no hope. My friend, you cannot work your way out of hell. You cannot be a good person. Your goods do not erase your bads. That doesn't work in any court. If I went to court after having committed murder and said, yeah, but I was a pastor for five or six years and I did a lot of good for people, the judge is going to look at me and say, so? You took that person's life. That does not matter. Goods do not erase bads. One day, our wrong will need to be punished. You see the problem? Do you fully understand the problem? We're sinners. We fall under the sin curse. We're sinners. And God hates sin and sends those who commit those sins to hell. You say, well then, Pastor Lejeune, what is the solution? I'm here to tell you that God not only is just, God is also love. Letter C, notice, Jesus became my substitution. Jesus became my substitution. If you could... um, uh, uh, if you could turn over to Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8. Romans 5 and verse number 8. I want you to see these verses with your own two eyes. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one provided for you in the rack there in front, row in front of you. Please get the Bible out. If you see somebody around you without a Bible, help them find these verses. I'd like everyone to see this. Th- these, are, these are some of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible. The truths in these verses are life-changing. Look at Romans 5 and look at verse number 8. 
but God commendeth or proved or demonstrated or showed His love toward us. In that, while we were yet sinners or while we were in a sinful state, Christ died for us. Look at verse 9. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Isn't that beautiful? You see, God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, do not eat that fruit. If you do, the day you do, you shall surely die. They ate the fruit. There was a death that came to their soul. There was a separation of their soul, a relationship from God. But God created a plan. You see, back when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, God took a little lamb in that garden and He had that lamb killed and blood was shed from that lamb. And that lamb was symbolic of the Son of God, Jesus, who would come some uh, 4,000 years later down to earth, born through a womb of a woman named Mary. And Jesus would come to earth uh, having, a, 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 having a mother, an earthly mother, but no earthly father. Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. And Jesus would be God on earth, 100% God and 100% man. He would feel our infirmities. He would be touched with our infirmities. Hebrews 4 tells us uh, He would be tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Uh, he would be perfect in every way. He would uh, grow up uh, to the ripe age of 30 years old. He'd begin a public ministry where He would heal people and love on people and help people. He would proclaim the truths of heaven here on earth at age 33 and a half. Some men who were jealous of Him, who were religious in nature, but phonies, took Him and arrested Him. and They had Him uh, tried uh, uh, falsely and accused of things falsely. He was spat upon. He was beaten. He had His beard ripped out of His face. And yet, while He was God on earth and could have called down the angels to stop it, He didn't. Why would He allow Himself to be beaten? Why would He allow Himself to suffer? Why would He go through such horrid atrocities? Because the price of sin is death and someone had to pay the price. Either I was going to pay it, either you were going to pay it, or someone was going to step in and pay it in our place. When I was 12 years old, my family was preparing to move from Mississippi to Alabama. We lived in a little tiny home there in Mississippi. We cleared all the furniture out of our bedroom the day we were moving, and there were me and two brothers that lived in this little tiny bedroom Got all the furniture out. Man, when, you, when you're 12 and you get all the furniture out of the room, it looks humongous. Just huge. And uh, that, that Sunday prior at Sunday school, I had won a bouncing ball. 12-year-old boys and bouncing balls are a great combination. Amen? And I got this bouncing ball, and I, I learned from another kid in my class that if you take a bouncing ball in a small hallway and you fling that thing hard enough, you can get it to bounce back and forth before it hits the floor. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. And so uh, all the furniture's out of the room. I take my two brothers into the bedroom. I close the door. Man, we begin to fling that ball around the room, and it's just bouncing everywhere. Uh, we're, you know, we're, we're happier than a pig in the mud. We're just thrilled to be doing this. Well, my dad, the killjoy, walks in the room, and he says what any dad would say, quit throwing the bouncing ball down the room. We had single-pane glass windows, and he said, you're going to break a window right before we move. Do not throw this ball in this room again, or I will spank you. Well, I just didn't care that my dad had to be such a killjoy. And so my dad went on moving and packing and loading the truck. And 
And uh, my, my brothers went on the other side of the house. Well, I went back in the bedroom and closed the door, and I took that bouncing ball, and I, uh, I just disobeyed him and started flinging that ball all over the room. Well, what do you know? <laughs> so after the window pane broke, I thought my heart began to race because I knew my dad wasn't kidding around. He would spank me. And I thought, it's time to cover up my sin. So I went outside and I picked up all the loose pieces of glass and I, uh, I, I closed the door to my bedroom hoping no one would go back in there. And I, I threw the, the glass away in the neighbor's trash can. Amen? And I just, I just hoped that my dad would not walk back in and see that broken window pane. Well, lo and behold, he walked in and saw the broken window pane. And so I, ne- next thing I hear is, Richard, Tim, James, get in here right now. We come running in the room. We're lined up like soldiers standing there, and he's pacing in front of us like a drill instructor. I don't know that's exactly what happened. That's how my memory remembers it. And uh, he's got his hands behind his back. He's walking in front of us as so. And who broke the window pane? And I thought to myself, he did not see me. If I keep my mouth shut, there's no way he will know. And so he gives us this speech. And I find out who did this. I'm going to wear you out. You won't be able to sit down uh, in the move. You'll be standing up in the van all the way to Alabama. And, and you, won't be able to, you won't be able to sit down for a week. And I thought, I'm definitely not saying anything now. <laughs> well, my little brother James, who's now a missionary in Honduras, God bless his soul, he was four years old at the time, he starts crying. And I thought, this is it. <laughs> He's going to get caught for something he didn't do. He said, well, Pastor, surely you were not heartless enough to just keep your mouth shut. Oh, yes, I was. <laughs> my dad gets in James's face. Did you break that window? And to my surprise, James spoke up and said, I'm so sorry, Daddy. Who got the spanking that day? James. Who deserved the spanking? I did. You say, well, did you ever confess when I was 19 years old and I had moved out of the house, I came clean. Please don't miss what I'm saying here. I deserve the spanking. James suffered in my place. James had done no wrong. But James suffered for me. Now on a much larger scale, listen up. Jesus was without blemish. He was without error. He had lived well into an adult life and never committed one sin. You and I deserve to go to hell. Jesus went to the cross. and He died in our place. How much does God love you? How much would you have to love someone to take your only son and kill them in someone else's place? Romans 5.19 continues the thought. It says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners... As by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. You see, Adam disobeyed. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, he obeyed. Adam ate the fruit when he was told not to. Jesus left heaven's throne. He who is rich became poor so that we who are poor could become rich, 2 Corinthians 9 tells us. And Jesus suffered in our place. How about 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says this, For God... 
For He, God, hath made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. How much does God love you enough to pay sin's price with the life of His Son? Romans 6.23, again, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life through or paid by Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin had a price. It was death. Jesus stepped up and said, I'll pay that price, and so they can go free. What love? What love? What is salvation? It is the salvaging of God's creation through the person of Jesus Christ. Letter D, notice, I must trust Christ with my soul. I must trust Christ with my soul. Here's here's an interesting, thought-provoking set of questions. Question one is this, and just answer in your head if you would. Did Jesus die for everyone when he died on the cross? Amen, he did, didn't he? I said answer in your head. Some of you couldn't help yourself. Yes, he did. Did Jesus die? Oh, so let's do this out loud. Did Jesus die for everyone when he died on the cross? Yes. Yeah, Second Peter says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all, 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 that word all means all, by the way, all should come to repentance. God's desire is that all be saved. Jesus died for everyone when he died on the cross. All right, uh, second question. Is everyone going to go to heaven? No. Now, that brings up an interesting thought. God died for, Jesus died for everyone to go, but not everyone's going to go. So, here's the question. Don't answer this out loud. This is a thought-provoking question. Think about it. If Jesus died for everyone to go to heaven, but not everyone's going to heaven, why do some go and some don't? Why do few go and many, most, don't? In fact, Jesus said that broad is the gate that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat, and narrow is the way that leadeth to life eternal, and Few there be that find it. Jesus died for all to go to heaven, but only a few make it. Hmm. Now I want you to imagine that come Christmas morning, I show up to your house with a gift. That gift I have paid for myself. And that gift is uh, expensive. It's exactly what you've been wanting for Christmas. And I show up to your house, and I offer you that gift. I paid for it, I wrapped it, it's yours. And you say, you know what, that's so kind of you, Pastor, to do that for me. I'll tell you what, here's 50 bucks and I'll take the gift. Can I just tell you right now, I would be offended at the thought that you're trying to pay me for something that I sacrificially am offering you. Many people go to God and they say, you know what, God, that's great and all that Jesus died on the cross. Here are my good works as payment for it. And God says, whoa, hold on. The gift of God is eternal life. It's a gift. You say, well, how do I get the gift of eternal life? Well, how would you get a gift if I offered it to you? You would just simply need to, by faith, extend your hand toward my goodwill and receive it. God is offering you eternal life. He needs you, by faith, to extend your hand through prayer and receive His goodwill toward you. I can't think of a greater gift than eternal life. How can I be so certain that when I die I'm going to heaven? Because God transferred ownership of eternal life from heaven into my name. And I'm as certain as I am standing here that when I die, I'm going to heaven. And I would ask you this. Has there been that point in time in your life where you didn't just ask God to give you something uh, uh, to help you out of a bad spot? 
You didn't just ask God to help you with your health or help you with a problem. No, no, no. You stopped and you said to God, I am a sinner on my way to hell and my faith is in you to be saved. Romans 10.13 says this, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How do you get eternal life? By calling on the name of the Lord. Now, please don't hear what I'm about, uh, please don't miss what I'm about to say. Since phones have come around, the word call has been cheapened. We think of the word call, we think of taking out our phone and dialing a number and calling somebody. Right? But I want you to imagine that word call before a phone existed. Why would you call on someone's name? You would be in great peril. You had to be in great problems. I want you to imagine that we're out on Long Island Sound and we're enjoying a, a day together and I fall into the sound and, and um, I'm, I'm drowning in the water and there you are. There you are in a boat nearby within earshot of me and, and you have a lifesaver, not the candy, amen, a lifesaver in the boat. And I call out to you and I say, save me. Boy, I'm drowning and I'm in great peril and you boat over to me and you throw that life raft out and you pull me and you will have rescued me or saved my life. How is it that someone uh, gets saved from hell? Boy, you have to come to a place where you realize how lost you are in your sin. You have to change a heart of unbelief toward Christ and choose, repent and choose to believe in Christ for salvation, and you call out to him in desperate plea and say, I'm drowning in my sin. Will you save me? I think of that thief who died next to Jesus on the cross. He, what did he say? He said, Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. What did he say? I believe it that you are my way to heaven. That thief had no good works to offer, but he had eternal life. I think of Mary Magdalene. Many biblical historians believe she was a prostitute. She had no good to offer, but she came to Jesus and Jesus saved her by her faith. I think of the publican, the tax collector who was a cheat and a fraud, who stood there in, in the temple and he beat his chest and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Bible says that he went out that day forgiven. We have to take our eyes off of our self-righteousness. Put our eyes on the fact that we're we're sinners, separated from God. And He's made a path to heaven through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me, Jesus said. I want everyone right now, we're not done with the message. This is about the halfway point. But I would like everyone to bow their head and close their eyes if they could. Every head bowed, every eye closed. When I was four years old, I prayed a very simple prayer from my heart. This wasn't a formalistic repeating a prayer after a priest or a preacher. This was a heartfelt cry of faith from deep inside. I repeated a prayer after my father. In essence, this is what I told the Lord. I said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve to go to hell when I die. Thank you for dying in my place on the cross. My faith is in you, Lord, save me. And that day, Jesus forgave my sins. He put the, the, the death of Jesus in my place. He, he put the righteousness of Christ on my record. He wrote my name in the Lamb's book of life. He took the books of sins that he had recorded and he threw them into the deepest sea. 
He buried him. One day when I die, I'm going to heaven because I put my faith in Jesus. And I'd like to help you do that right here, right now. If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you, and you'd like to do that right now, would you just pray this prayer after me right where you are, under your breath, under your breath, just say this prayer, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know my sin is wrong. I know I deserve to go to hell when I die. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place. Save my soul. My faith is in you and in you alone. Give me the gift of eternal life and take me to heaven when I die. With our heads bowed and eyes still closed, if you prayed that prayer for the first time and you meant it with all your heart, I'd like to rejoice with you. No one else is looking, just me and the Lord. If you prayed that prayer, would you just slip up your hand right where you are? Is there one in here today that says, I prayed that prayer? I see one hand. Is there anyone else that says, I prayed that prayer today? I put my faith in Jesus to save me. If you're embarrassed to raise your hand, but you did pray that prayer, would you come let me know after church? I'd like to rejoice with you. You can look back up here. You see, to put the helmet of salvation on, you must trust Christ for salvation. Number one, we saw the plan of salvation. Quickly, notice number two, the process of salvation. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 8. Ephesians 2 and verse number 8. The process of salvation. Here we have a two-part process of salvation laid out in verses 8 through 10. 8, 8 through 9 lay out the first part. Verse 10 lays out the second part. Look here. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now, salvation is a two-step process. In essence, what I'm saying is that salvation is much more than just being saved. Many of you prayed a prayer similar to the one I just led in church a moment ago. That was the moment you got saved. Your salvation, as far as your eternal destination, was sealed and finalized. My friend, you began a journey of being saved. Uh, let me give you an A and a B here. Let me make this a little more clear. Letter A, notice the reconciled soul. The reconciled soul. Verse 8 and 9 in the passage we just read uh, teaches that our, we are saved by our faith placed inside of the grace of God exhibited on the cross. When those two elements, God's grace and our faith, are locked in, combined together, the human being is brought alive. There is a, a, a re, renewal, a regeneration. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He hath saved us. Watch this. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That word regenerate, regeneration, to be made anew, to come alive. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creature. Old things passed away. All things become new. John 3, uh, verse 7, Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must 
be born again. New creature, regenerated, born again. This carries with it the idea of becoming a new in Christ. Regenerated in Christ. We are reconciled with God. Our sin had us at odds with God. Jesus stepped in the middle. He paid the price. God looks at us through the scope of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. His wrath is turned away. His forgiveness is granted. And we are reconciled anew in Christ. That is the first step of salvation. Do you do anything for it? Absolutely not. Jesus did the work on the cross. We simply believe in His work and we are reconciled with God. Uh, Letter A, the reconciled soul. Letter B, notice the recycled life. The recycled life. Now, I'm not going to have you turn to all these verses because of time, but I want you to listen closely uh, to what I'm about to say. Verse 10. Look back at verse 10 of Ephesians 2 there. You're already there. Let's look at that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Now, this is after you've been made anew in Christ. Okay? So, step one, your soul is reconciled. Step two, your life begins to become recycled. Look at verse 10. For we are His... What's that next word? We are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Say it with me. Good works. Right? Which God hath before ordained. Read the rest of the verse with me. That we should walk in them. You are His workmanship. You were created anew in Christ unto good works so that you can walk in these good works. You weren't saved to sit. You were saved to serve. Amen? Let me illustrate. Imagine with me, if you will, that out next to the road, you have two cans. You have a trash can, and you have a recycling can. And in the trash can, uh, uh, one truck is going to come, as happens every week in front of your house, most likely. And uh, that, the, 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 uh, what's, the, the contents of that trash can get thrown in the back of the truck, hauled to the dump, and that stuff gets incinerated. Inside one of the bags in your trash can is a soda pop can. That soda pop can ought to be in the recycling bin, but it's not. It's in the trash can. And that soda pop can can, is condemned, if it stays where it is, to burn in the incinerator. And then you come along as a um, earth-friendly, eco-conscious soul, and you open up the trash bag, and you take out that can. You have saved it from the incinerator. Just like when Jesus comes along and scoops you out of the trash can of sin and he scoops you away and saves you from hell. You with me this morning? Everybody with me? You following the illustration? Now, imagine that if you will, I take that can and I set it in my garage and I forget about it. It sits there and it's just going to waste and it can't have anything positive come out of it again. But instead, I take that, tra- that, that soda pop can, and instead of throwing it in the trash, I take it and I put it in the recycling bin. And you know what? That recycling bin is put in a different truck, and that soda can is given new life and new purpose. Can I tell you where many Christians are right now? They've been saved from hell. But they have not recycled their life for Christ. They're just sitting on a shelf somewhere. Are they going to hell? Nope. Are they doing anything worth anything for the kingdom of heaven? Nope. Nope. They're just sitting on the shelf, wasting away, wasting away. My friend, you weren't saved to sit and do nothing. You were saved and made a new creature in Christ. He has a work 
for you, He wants you to perform. Hebrews 2.3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him? I believe this verse is dealing with the salvation of one soul. However, a strong application from this verse can be made in regards to the salvaging or recycling of one's life to the service of the Lord. Do you know that these two salvations are laid out in the Bible? Psalm 51.12, David said after he committed the great sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and he was confronted by Nathan, Psalm 51, we find David on his face uh, getting his heart right with the Lord. David says in verse 12, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Thy salvation. What was David talking about here? David was talking about the salvation he received from God the moment he got saved. Then you turn to Philippians 2, verse 12, and uh, Paul tells the church of Philippi, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, thy salvation is a reference to the being pulled out of the trash can. Your own salvation is the reference to being put in the recycling bin and being made anew in Christ to do something for the work of God. Notice that, number one, God does the work in the salvaging of our soul. And number two, we do the work in the salvaging of our lives. He did the work to save you. You can't work your way to heaven, but you can work your way into the process of becoming like Jesus Christ. Again, Ephesians 2.10. We are His workmanship, created unto good works, that we should walk in them. You have been pulled from the garbage can. Then you have your place in heaven secured that can never be undone. However, there is much more to salvation than just being saved or rescued from hell. We must be proactive in the recycling of our life. Number one, the plan of salvation. Number two, the process of salvation. Number three, notice the protection of salvation. The protection of salvation. Ephesians six seventeen, where we began this morning, says, And take the helmet, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Salvation from hell keeps the devil from knocking our head off and taking us with him to eternal hell, to his eternal destination. But watch this. Salvation to service, wearing the helmet of salvation to service, keeps the devil from corrupting our thought process and allowing him to confuse our doctrine. Many Christians today, they're not wearing the helmet of salvation when it comes to having their soul recycled, their life rather recycled. They go through life okay being who they were yesterday. No intent to grow. No intent to do the work of the Lord. No intent to walk with the Lord. And you know what? Satan is able, because they're not strapped on that helmet of salvation, Satan is able to affect their thought life. I hope everyone here is wearing the helmet of reconciliation. Christian, to avoid Satan's attack on your mind, you must also wear the helmet of recyclization. I just made up a word there. You like that? Recyclization. Are you being recycled anew into the work of Christ? Hey, I just want to, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Number, number four, quickly, the power of salvation. The power of salvation. Acts 1.8, and you shall receive Power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. 1 Corinthians 1.18 Paul said to the church of Corinth, For the preaching of the cross is of them that perish 
foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The power of God. The preaching of the Word of God is foolishness to the lost. It is the power of God to those that are saved. Charles Bradlaugh was an outstanding atheist in England. Down in one of the slums of London was a minister by the name of Hugh Prince Hughes. Hugh Prince Hughes. All London was aware of the, the work of grace going on in his mission. He had a mission where he was rescuing uh, people whose lives were wrecked. Charles Bradlaw, the atheist, challenged Mr. Hughes to debate with him the validity of the claims of Christianity. London was greatly interested. What would Mr. Hughes do? Uh, Charles Bradlaugh was far smarter and more of an intellect than Mr. Hughes. He immediately, Mr. Hughes immediately accepted the challenge and in doing so added one of his own challenges. Hughes said to Bradlaugh, he said, I propose to you that we each bring some concrete evidence of the validity of our beliefs in the form of men and women who have been redeemed from the lives of sin and shame by the influence of our teachings. Mr. Brad, uh, Mr. Hughes said, I will bring 100 such men and women, and I challenge you, atheist Brad Law, to do the same. He went on and said, if you cannot bring 100 uh, to match my 100, it will, it will be, I will be satisfied if you will bring 50 men and women who will stand and testify that they have been lifted up uh, from the lives of shame by the influence of your atheistic teachings. If you cannot bring 50, then bring 20 who will say, as my 100 will, that uh, they have a great joy uh, in a life of self-respect as a result of your atheistic teachings. If you cannot bring 20, I will be satisfied if you bring 10. Oh, Mr. Bradlaugh, I challenge you to bring one. Just one man or woman who will make such a testimony regarding the uplifting of your atheistic teachings. Again, Loudon was stirred. What would Mr. Bradlaugh do and answer Charles Bradlaugh with great uh, discomfiture uh, and chagrin publicly withdrew his challenge for the debate? You see, the power of the cross, the power of the preaching of the cross, people who believe in Jesus and give their heart not only to be saved from hell, but saved to be rec uh, uh, renewed in Christ, that sanctification process in Christ, boy, there's a power to it. I've seen people whose lives were totally wrecked. I've seen marriages that were totally wrecked. I've seen homes that were totally wrecked. I've seen people who were strung out on drugs and had a life who was just destroyed. They gave their heart to Jesus and Jesus made them anew. The power. The power of salvation. Let's finish number five and lastly, notice the pleasures of salvation. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. The Bible says, He that spared not his own son delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Freely give us all things. If Jesus was willing to lay down the life of his own son, Jesus is willing to give you just about anything that will make you a better person. God desires for us to live with a joyous feeling about our salvation God who made us understands that we eventually will lose our joy unless we receive a new stimulation. Now, years ago they invented this medicine. And in this medicine there were different, uh, 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 there's different coatings within the medicine. 
And in between layers of coating, there was uh, medication that was present. And so as the acid in your stomach eats away one layer, medicine is released into your system. And then slowly, over a set amount of time, the acid in your stomach eats another layer. And then more medicine is released. And then yet another layer and more medicine is released. And can I tell you that as you grow in the Lord, one stimulation begins to not offer you the joy that it used to. There's a new stimulation that becomes alive to you, And as you grow in the Lord and as you become more like Him, there are more uh, things that await you to bring joy to your heart. You know, uh, the day I got saved for about four, five, six, ten years, I couldn't even begin to explain how joyous I was that God had saved my soul. Amen? Uh, many people who grow up in my shoes, or they get saved as a child in a Christian home and they're in church their whole life, You know, at some point we can almost, if we're not careful, yawn at the fact that God saved us. Now, I work hard to keep my heart tender toward what Christ did for me. But can I tell you that as I was saved at four, I got saved from the bottle, the milk bottle. Amen? I got saved from filthy shows on TV such as Disney. Amen? I'm being sarcastic here. Um, Some folks were saved out of deep, deep, deep sin. And, and what they were saved from in comparison to me, boy, they think about it and they get on their knees and they begin to weep about what God did to save their soul. But can I tell you, there comes a point in time where it doesn't quite bring the same joy to your heart it did the moment after you got saved. But watch this. Like that time-released medicine, you begin to develop a walk with God and you experience the joy of prayer. And like that time-release capsule, there's a new stimulation of joy that comes in your heart. Then you begin to learn how to share your faith with others. And you watch someone else bow their head and get saved. Because you went through the gospel with them. And this new uh, stimulation comes about. And as you grow in the Lord, you begin to reach new levels in Christ. You begin to experience new joys. You begin to experience great things. Why? Because not only was your life salvaged, from the incinerator. Your life was recycled and you begin to grow in the Lord. And as you grow more and more in Christ, you find more and more new joys that await you. Many Christians, and I finish with this, many Christians have plateaued. Many Christians have plateaued. I am the under-shepherd of White Oak Baptist Church. You know what that means? Everybody look up here. It means it's my duty to lead you to become more like Him. It's my chore and my privilege to know each one of you well enough to know where you are and where you're going. You know, I pray for those that attend this church at some point every week. Can I tell you what I pray? I pray that you don't just plateau and sit at the same spot the rest of your Christian life. How many understand this truth? If you're not growing, you're probably shrinking. You say, well, pastor, I've learned the Bible. I've read the whole thing through or most everything through. I've really learned the Bible. Can I tell you this right here? And I'm probably going to hit this again tonight, but, but, but it bears repeating. Listen, there reaches a point where you know enough of the Bible where just simply attending church is not enough for you to continue to grow. Just simply reading and studying the Bible is not enough for you to grow. You say, well, pastor, then what am I to do at that point? You're to get busy teaching others the Word of God. 
You're to get busy serving. You're to get busy being that workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Have you plateaued? If you've plateaued, then my friend, you're not becoming like Christ as He would have you become. If you're here today and you've never put on the helmet of salvation as far as you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, let me encourage you to do that if you didn't do it earlier in the service. If you are here and you're saved, I just want to ask you this question. Is salvation to you more than just being saved? Or now that you have your fire insurance, you've just settled and you're not really growing as you ought to. Boy, let's, let's commit to not just plateau, but to reach new heights for the Lord. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed, every head bowed. Every eye closed this morning.